open a Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 1. If you have a Bible that you brought with you, then, then you can open that, or you can use the one that's right there in the Pew Bible. And if you're using that Bible, it'll be on page 1184, very near the back of our Bibles. We're here in the book of Hebrews. I'm Kevin Kozlowski. I'm the senior pastor at Faith, and, and we've just started this new series in this new year looking at the opening chapters of this sermon. It's, it's an epistle because it's written down and sent as a letter, but it was designed to be heard, a sermon spoken, preached to the people of God. We saw in the opening verses last week that the, the contrast between when God spoke to his people in the Old Testament and the way that God now has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. The name that Jesus received as son is superior to the name the angels received. The ministry of Jesus is superior to theirs. And so we, we see that argument here continue at the opening of this sermon as that claim that Jesus is better will now be backed up by the authority of Scripture, by this string of quotations. You can even see it visually just as your eye turns to the page. You see that, that the, the text here that I'll read doesn't, doesn't reach the margins of each column because it's poetry. It's, it's quotations taken from the earlier parts of Scripture. Jesus is the one who is superior to the angels because he has inherited the name Son. Listen as I read Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when, he, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Let's bow in prayer as we ask God to apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we, we consider it a privilege to use that title, to describe our relationship with you, that we as your sons and daughters, because of Jesus Christ, your son, can call you our father. And so, Lord, I thank you that you speak to us. You've not left us without guidance or instruction, but you have revealed yourself through Jesus Christ, your Son. He is the one who, who made atonement for our sins, who provided purification for us. He is the King now enthroned on high. And so, Lord, let us submit our hearts and our lives to the truth of his kingdom, to the claims of his glory and power. 
Lord, speak to those who, who are here without a faith in Jesus or with questions about who Jesus is. Lord, give us your truth through your word. We come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's really the kind of spring break every college student dreams of. I carried home a giant stack of church history books to write the term paper I had put off all semester. I mean, these were the like fat books in the dusty part of the library that no one else really uses. Unless you were a Bible major who has to take an ancient church history class and write a theology paper. But despite the fact that I had procrastinated here until spring break, I really had what I thought was a great plan. I picked a very narrow topic, the doctrine of original sin before Augustine, and then I took home a bunch of books and pulled quotations from it, figuring that if I just take a bunch of original sources, what did they say about it, string it together, all I'll need to do is put an intro conclusion, a couple of sentences here and there, and it'll work out. And honestly, for an undergraduate paper, at least in the humanities, that actually is a really good strategy, to just get a bunch of original source material, put it together, and, and turn it in. And it actually, it, it worked. I got the highest, I got 100% on this church history paper. Although I, I glanced back at it to, to see this week. Oh, it was awful. I mean, horrendous to read. Ex unless you were my professor who was going to be the one who would grade it. Who would he rather hear what a bunch of contemporary theologians think about ancient history? Would he rather uh, me as a student merely wrestle with with what's happening now, or would he want me going back to the church fathers? Wouldn't he? I mean, I was, I was playing to the greater. He was going to be convinced by arguments that came from the mouths of the original sources. Now, he, here in Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews goes back to the sources. Not merely, though, because he, he knows that what is what will be convincing to his listeners, although it is, because he's the preacher to, to a congregation mostly made up, it seems, we would understand from the, the argument of the whole book, of men and women who had grown up in a Greek-speaking Jewish synagogue, reading the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so they are already predisposed to say, are, are, the, are the new things you're saying about Jesus, do they match with what God has already said? And so as he, as he makes this argument at the beginning, in the past God spoke, but now he has spoken by his son, he stops to, to affirm, but that message that you hear, afresh and anew, revealed to us in Jesus, is the message that has been there all along. That he, he knows their love for the scriptures. He understands the reverence they have for the revelation of God. And so the Old Testament quotations here in Hebrews 1 prove the point that he introduces in this chapter. Jesus is better. Specifically here in chapter 1, Jesus is better than angels. Now, it, to us as modern readers, this sort of seems like, oh, okay, sure. Why does it matter? Like, why are we starting with angels? Like, if you're going to talk about what Jesus has done, why are we talking about him in a relationship with angels? Why does this point matter? Who cares about angels Anyway, now elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, we see that, that there was, in the first century church, a danger of people worshiping angels, of, of sort of humbly saying, 
you know, it, it would be too much to worship God himself, and so let's worship the angelic messengers he has sent. Paul, in his letter to the church in Colossae, so this is Colossians chapter 2, he warns, that, he warns against those who would claim that the worship of angels gives them some sort of special spiritual insight that isn't available to others. Because think of it, if angels are God's supernatural messengers, then if you spend time with them, wouldn't you get some sort of supernatural insight into who God is? So that's the, the, the warning that we have in, in Colossians 2. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connections with the head. He has lost connections with Christ. In seeking the ministry of angels, the, the ancient church was in danger of losing its focus on Jesus. And so that's a potential problem in the ancient church. But it doesn't seem that that's the, the problem we have here in Hebrews. Actually, the, the, the author of Hebrews' argument, it, it grows much more organically. He, he, he's thinking about the fact that God has revealed himself. And so it, it's, it's not that, that he's worried that, that this church is going to worship angels. It's that he wants them to, to understand if God in the past spoke by angelic messengers, and now he has spoken to us by the Son, it, it's really a question of what category do we put Jesus in? Is Jesus, like the prophets of the Old Testament, merely a messenger? Or even greater than the prophets of the Old Testament, is Jesus like the angels of the Old Testament? And, and the word angel, it just means messenger. So it's, it's you mean, you could have in the ancient world had the title of angel, and it didn't mean supernatural being. It just meant you were the messenger for someone. But, but is, is Jesus, is he in the category of a human prophet, merely a human prophet? Or maybe he's in the category of an angel, a supernatural being with access to God's throne room. Is that who Jesus is? And, and what, what, what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is, no, in the past, that's how God spoke through men and women carried along by the Holy Spirit, through angelic messengers. But now he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is an entirely different category than angels. The name he has inherited, son, that he is the son of God, proves that he is superior. And so that's why the, the argument is stop worshiping angels. That, that might not even be, a, be an issue or a thought in the minds of, of the Hebrews. No, the, the question is, who is Jesus. Now, maybe these aren't, aren't the first questions that jump into our mind, partly because we're caught up with the questions of, of our own age, of our own culture. We're not ready to talk about messengers and Jesus' relationship to angels because we're offended by a prior assumption. You and I, before we talk about angels, we're already offended that God would think he has the right to tell us who he is and what he's done. Really, because we're, we're potentially offended that anyone would do that. The, the, the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, in the past, God spoke, but now he has spoken. Well, those are, those are kind of offensive words in our modern culture. Because we live under the assumption that you don't have the right to tell me anything. I make my own decisions. I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to listen to anyone else. 
I'm the arbiter of what is true and good and lovely and beautiful, and I will make my own decisions. So we're not even, we're not even willing to get to the conversation about angels because it's like, Give us a flip about angels. Like, what do angels matter here at all? God, who do you think you are that you have the right to tell me what is true? Now, the first hearers of Hebrews were steeped in the scriptures. And so they humbly listened for a word from God. And their culture affirmed that, that the gods, even if their culture more broadly didn't focus on the true God, their culture assumed that the gods were involved in the world. Now, we often assume that our culture has made great progress, that history is just one line of, of ascending progress, and maybe the, the last generation has started to topple that idea that, that things are always constantly getting better. And, and certainly, I would think it's true. When you go to the hospital, you get much better care than your grandparents got when they first went to a hospital. You have technology in your pockets that, that's greater than the techno technology that took men to the moon. So yes, there are lots of ways that, that the way we live as modern people is better than the way people lived in the ancient world. You and I can wash our hands indoors easily and, and stop the spread of disease. Well, at least try to. But is it really better to remove the possibility of supernatural intervention in the world? Like, is that progress? The modern assumption that, that there is nothing supernatural that happens around us. Because when we hear talk of angels, we're like, wait, what? Why do angels even matter? And yet this ancient posture was, there's a lot happening in the universe that I surely don't understand. It wouldn't matter how big of a telescope I could build, I still wouldn't understand it. It's a humble posture. Or do, you, do you think today we're really better to shift life's biggest questions into the, from the category of universal truth into the category of personal opinion. Meaning in the ancient world, they would listen to authorities because they thought there was some truth to be discovered. Well, today we say, truth? What is truth? Your truth, my truth, we each get our own truth. Is, is that really progress? I mean, maybe we need to, to start by listening to questions we wouldn't even have asked. I have never been asked pastorally, hey, what's Jesus' relationship to angels? Like, it's not a question that's on our lips. But maybe asking that question or hearing the answer to that question this morning can teach us something about who Jesus is, his superiority, his greatness. But, but maybe it will also help us with some of the basic questions of our human existence. Who am I? Where do I fit in this universe, in the world? Is there a creator? And if there is, how would I know? See, those are the kinds of questions that are, that are assumed by both the author and the readers of the book of Hebrews. I'm a person made by God who needs to hear God's truth in order to understand how to live. I'm a person made by God who's desperate for salvation that I cannot gain for myself. Maybe if we start with that understanding, we might learn something from this passage. Now, as we, as we begin to, to look at the details here, I want you to see that, that what the, the author of Hebrews does is, is I mean, it's, it wasn't the, the sort of the vomiting out of, of passages like I did in my term paper in college. I mean, I was just going for volume. I had a certain page limit I had to get to, and so if I could get enough quotes, it would get me there. 
And so it, it really didn't matter. I mean, my structure was basically chronological. I started with the earliest church fathers and dumped a bunch of information and went to the next period and dumped more until I got to Augustine because I picked that as a cutoff so that I could turn the paper in. But, but the author here in Hebrews isn't just dumping some random passages to fill space. He's not merely trying to convince his listeners of, of what he says is true by just throwing a volume of information. No, he's making some rather specific points here. And he structures it clearly for us because look at, look at how he begins in verse 5 and how that matches the way he speaks in verse 13. That they sort of serve as the bookends to his argument. He starts in verse 5 with this rhetorical question. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I've become your father. And he returns to that same rhetorical device in verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is, well, you never said that to an angel. Because angels aren't in the same category as Jesus. Jesus is in a category all his own. Above the, the heavenly host, Jesus reigns supreme. At, at whatever category you could get to, the highest you could think of, Jesus is better than that. And the quotes here, at the beginning and end of this, this collection of, of seven quotations from the Old Testament, are from the beginning and the end of the book of Psalms. The, the, the quote in verse 5 is from Psalm 2. The, verse in, the, the, the quote in verse 13 is from Psalm 110, from the, the first section of the Psalter and from the last section of the Psalter. And, and two, two Psalms, which really sort of frame our theological understanding of what God was doing in the Old Testament and what promise he had made for us in Jesus Christ, the Savior. So, so flip with me to, to Psalm 2. As we look at it, just, just briefly in context, the, the, the book of Hebrews pulls out this quotation about Jesus being the Son of God. And yet the psalm as a whole is a psalm about the king who will rule over the nations with all power. And so as we read it, we see it, in, each time we, we hear the reference to the Son, we see it capitalized. Because we understand from the New Testament that it's not merely speaking about an ordinary king on a throne, it's speaking about the king on the heavenly throne, the Son of God. So it begins with the question, Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. And so the question is, who is the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised king? Well, it's the, the one who gets the title, the son of God, in verse 7 of Psalm 2. That, that the Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have become your father. The, the psalm ends with the, the command to kiss the son, to, to humble ourselves before him, and to love and adore Jesus, the son of God, as the king. Because the Psalter is not merely pointing us toward an earthly king, it's pointing us toward the heavenly king. Or if we turn to Psalm 110, which for you Bible trivia fans, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted over and over again, alluded to frequently in the scriptures, even just in the book of Hebrews, we, we see it quoted not only in our chapter, chapter one, but quoted again in chapter five and quoted again in chapter seven. So three times this psalm is quoted in Hebrews, and it's quoted repeatedly 
throughout the New Testament. Because from, from, the, from, from the beginning, the, reading this Psalm of David, it wasn't merely that it was understood that this was speaking about David. It was speaking about someone greater than David, a king who had come in the order of Melchizedek, the Old Testament priest. A, a theme which we'll capture later in the book of, of Hebrews. But Psalm 110 begins with, with this quotation that we have in, in Hebrews. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then it's a description of, of the king whose kingdom will last forever, a king whose power extends over all. And who could God possibly be calling Lord? Well, it wouldn't make sense to call an earthly king Lord. And so it must be, and we see it clearly referenced here in Hebrews, that this is speaking about the Son of God who have all power and authority. The Son of God, Jesus the Savior, Hebrews 1 is making clear to us, has a name which is superior to the name of the angels. They are messengers, servants of God. Now, when when we turn back to Hebrews, we see that this argument with these great bookends about Jesus being the Son of God, the King who will reign forever, we now see the the argument fleshed out and filled out between these bookends. Verse 5 continues with with a second quotation, this time coming from the Old Testament historical books of of 2 Samuel or 1 Chronicles, describing the, the reign of David, the one to whom God makes the promise that his kingdom will last forever, And then in that great promise, we we read in the scriptures that that God said to him that that, that he would call his son the son of God. Now, in the original context, we would have said, well, we know who the son he's referencing is. It's Solomon, the one who will build the temple of God. And yet we understand that, that the Old Testament promises made about a king who reigns forever with all of his enemies subdued, well, that, that wasn't exhausted in the work of Solomon. It couldn't have been exhausted because of Solomon's foolishness and failures. And so who would be God's son? We need a king even greater than Solomon who would come. And and when verse six then begins this contrast in verse six about, well, what does the scripture say about angels? And then verses eight and following, what does it say about the son of God? We we, we find out that the, the angels are merely servants of God. They are creatures made by God. Verse 6 says, with a, with a quotation from, from Deuteronomy's Song of Moses, a, a psalm, a song of praise, but, but not in the book of Psalms, in the first five books of Scripture, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is the, the one who's in a category above the angels who deserves their worship. Because in speaking of angels, verse 7 God says he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. They are his servants who he can use as he pleases. The way he uses the wind to to change the atmosphere, the way he, he brings about fire, he can use his angels the way he would use anything in all of creation. They're his mere servants under his absolute power. They worship the sun. And then the contrast is set here with, with who Jesus is in verse 8, but about the Son. So verses 6 and 7, what do, what do we learn about angels? But now, what do we learn about the Son? And again, more quotations from, from the Old Testament scriptures. From Psalm 45, we learn that, that this king in verse 8 
has a throne that will last forever and ever. A king who will reign in righteousness, in perfection and goodness. The one who we read in verse 9 that God has set above all of his companions. He is the one above all others. He is the Son of God, the one enthroned on high. And then verses 10 through 12 with a quotation from Psalm 102. He's the one enthroned on high because he has been there from the beginning. He made everything. And everything in this world that was made eventually wears out. You can, you, I, I once, when I was first senior pastor, went to visit somebody who was a new member here at the church. And he looked at me and he said, senior pastor? He said, I've got t-shirts older than you, son. And I, and I realized, oh, well, I'm getting to the age where I now have t-shirts that are starting to get to be that old. Decades old t-shirts that I, I can't get rid of. Um, because everything we have will eventually wear out like a garment be rolled up and tossed away like a robe and yet God Jesus the son remains the same and his years will never end a contrast between the passing of creation and the son of God who who rolls up the things which wear out and tosses them aside. Angels are servants of God with great power, but any glory that they have is glory that reflects on the goodness and power of God because they are messengers and servants. The message they bring is in service of the the gospel of salvation. They are ministering spirits, we're told in verse 14. They are servants, and so Jesus is better than the angels because he is the creator, the one who made the angels. And so Jesus receives the title son, the the title, the name which is above the name the angels are given. He is the son of God. But you notice in these quotations, we we get descriptions of Jesus that give him other titles, ones which if you've been in church before sound familiar to you. We we saw back in in verse eight that he is called God. About the son, the scriptures write, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Jesus is God on the throne. Or in verse 10, we read that in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. He is co-equal with God, claiming the title of Yahweh, the revealed name of God. He is the Lord of all. Jesus is the only one who can mediate for us between God, between us and God the Father. Jesus is the only Son of God from all eternity, but, but declared with the power of God in the resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. By the power of the resurrection, he's declared to be the Son of God, the one in human flesh who rightly bears the title, who will reign on a throne forever, who brings us back to God. Psalm, Psalm 110, which, which we, we see quoted there at the end in verse 13, sort of as the, the pinnacle, the, the high point of, of this argument. Psalm 110 promises, and we see it in verse 13, that one day all of the enemies of the Son of God will be defeated. Where God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this wasn't merely an academic exercise about, what's Jesus' relationship with the angels? No, the argument here in Hebrews is immensely practical and personal to us. That one day, Jesus as the Lord, as God himself, 
will put an end to everything which, which has shown rebellion against his kingdom. Jesus will conquer every one of his enemies. And so for us, that is great comfort and hope. That in our fears and worries, whatever is being thrown at you today will one day be finally and fully subject to the authority of Jesus as Savior. Whatever fear you face today, it will be taken away. Whatever pain and sorrow and suffering, Jesus will one day destroy all of his enemies. And so cling to the Son of God. Find your hope in him. These quotations aren't just thrown out so that you would sort of nod along and say, oh, okay, I get it, Jesus is better than angels. No, it's meant that you would cling to Jesus because Jesus is better than angels. Even angelic messengers with access to the throne of God who do his bidding, who bring the message of salvation to the world, Jesus is greater than that. But this also means that, that this truth is a challenge to us in our pride and arrogance. When we think, I've got it figured out. I don't need your help, God. We're really acting like toddlers in the, in the, in the universe saying, I do it myself. No. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Humble yourself to hear this message of truth. Turn away from your wickedness and find hope in the righteousness of Jesus the Savior. Sound like the, the paper I turned in, which was just an academic exercise. I was playing a game to get a grade. I probably should have learned more than I did, but I was just playing the academic game. I need to turn this in to finish this, to get the credits, to get to graduation, to move on. But if that's why you're here, just kind of get through, like I can check this off and move on with my week, then you're missing the, the point. Jesus is the Son of God who will reign forever, who will defeat all of his enemies. Jesus is better than angels. He is the creator, the one who remains the same forever. He is the Son of God, the Savior who gave himself for us. And it's this claim of eternal authority that condemned Jesus in his earthly trial. When Jesus was arrested, betrayed by Judas, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was taken before the, the, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests. Those who conspired against Jesus brought witnesses, but they hadn't prepared the witnesses well enough to lie clearly enough in order for their testimony to match. And so in frustration, the, the high priest, because he knows that, that this trial isn't going the way he would want, that all that's being shown is that Jesus is truly righteous and pure, he then turns the question onto Jesus directly. And we, we read this in Mark 15, the end of the Gospel of Mark. The high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? He's asking the question that you and I, having read Hebrews 1, know the answer to. Yes, he's the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Anointed One. And so Jesus answers the high priest. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, describing himself, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the, the claim that we read in the Scriptures. That's the claim of Psalm 2, the, the claim of Psalm 110. That's the claim of, of the book of Hebrews, that yes, Jesus is the king who reigns at the right hand of God in heaven. And so the high priest, we read in Mark 15, tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. 
what do you think? He claims the position of God. Of course he's blaspheming, is the high priest's assumption. And so what do you think? They all condemned him as worthy to death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. It was for this reason that Jesus was wrongly condemned. The high priest would have been right. If it weren't true, it would be blasphemy to claim to be the son of God, to claim to be the one sitting at the right hand of God. And this claim of Jesus' authority is before us today. What do you think? It's the question that the high priest asked in order to to gather his co-conspirators to condemn Jesus to death. But it's a question that still rings out for us today. You've heard the truth of who Jesus is. What do you think? Do you hear the testimony of Hebrews? Do you hear the claims of the Old Testament? Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King who reigns. He is Lord of all. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. That you speak to us in in the assurance of salvation that can be ours through faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves before these claims. We would put our trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those that have listened to your word and, and still doubt or question, Lord, grant them the faith to believe, the humility to confess their sins and to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Father, we thank you for the, the clarity of your word, that, that you, you press upon us answers to questions we wouldn't have even thought to ask, but questions which are central to who we are, to understand the greatness and glory of Jesus, to understand the, the gift of salvation that is brought through his sacrifice, and the gift of eternal life that we have through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven as king. And so we come to you in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.